Good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to worship with you this morning. I'm glad you're here with us. And there we go. Uh, would you take your Bibles, please, and open to the book of Micah? We're going to be in Micah chapters 4 and 5 today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, or maybe you're new to the Bible, let me encourage you to open up that pew Bible in front of you, and you'll find Micah chapter 4 on page 825. Uh, your experience this morning will be infinitely better if you've got a copy of the Bible open, so that might be an app on your phone. I'm a big fan of the old analog Bible, so uh, something open somewhere, please. Micah chapter 4, uh, verse 9 through chapter 5, verse 5 is uh, where we're going to spend our time this morning. Have you ever thought about a passage of the Bible as describing your life story? If I were to ask you to describe your testimony, your spiritual journey using a passage of Scripture, I wonder what passage of Scripture you might use. You might say Psalm 23, that's it. God's guided me through all of these things. That'd be a great passage to choose. Uh, you might say something simple like, hey, it's just John 3.16 for me. I, I, I believed on Christ. He gave me everlasting life. That'd be a great choice. Maybe Romans 8. I bet we got some Romans 8 people in here. And uh, there's an aspect of Romans 8 that you would say, man, this is it for me. This is my story right here. But have you ever considered Micah chapter 4 verse 9 through chapter 5 verse 5? If I were to read that to you, I will here in just a moment, upon first reading, you would say, hmm, a little unusual. Some of the language is strong. I'm, I'm not so sure that this would be the passage for me. Uh, there's something about Bethlehem that seems familiar, but uh, I don't know. I might just want to read it fast and set it aside and then get on to something that better reflects my own life story. But I'm willing to predict that the words we're going to study this morning reflect, reflect your life in a greater way than you realize. Have you met the grace of God in the pit of your sin? Has God given you victory against an enemy that outmatched you? Have you met Jesus? If any of those things are true, then Micah chapters 4 and 5 is your story. This is your life story right here in the prophet's mouth. He answers an important question this morning in the passage we're going to study. The question coming from God's people would be this. Uh, where, what's my future with God in the midst of the consequences of my sin? Micah speaks to a people who are guilty of gross rebellion against God. And on a future day from the day in which Micah spoke these words, God's judgment was going to come in the form of an enemy nation. It was an intense and horrifying judgment, a deserved judgment. But still, it would leave God's people wondering, what about us now? Now that we are guilty, we are experiencing the consequences of our sin, is God done with us? Is He going to just throw us aside? Is there any hope or any future for us? Maybe you've asked that same question as well. 
different times in your life when the guilt of your sin landed acutely on your soul or the consequences of your sin were laid bare for you and others to see. It's in those dark moments where we might feel hopeless and empty, but that's where the words of the prophet are so important for us because God's grace reaches to us even in the places of our most intense consequences and the darkness of our sin. Now, when Micah first spoke these words to his contemporaries, to his neighbors, I'm not quite sure how they were received. My guess is that some people believed what Micah said about the judgment to come and the grace to follow, but I think most people probably scoffed at him. Fast forward 130 years, and the things that Micah prophesied came to fruition, And I think for those people who carried Micah's words with them into exile, I think that they heard those words and they found hope and encouragement in them. And so now here you and I are studying these ancient words again, but for us, these are not future tense or even present tense. Everything we're reading this morning is past tense, and that's a really privileged position for us to be in today. Because for us, we get to read this from the position of having seen all of God's promises in this passage come to fruition. And that should lead us to love the king from Bethlehem with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a word for people beat up by sin, discouraged in their walk with the Lord, wondering, has God's grace missed me or forgotten me? My goal in preaching this passage is for you to trust in the powerful kindness of God even when your sin does its worst. So Micah chapters 4 and 5 gives us three ways God responds to people who are marred by sin. Now before we read this passage, it'll be helpful for you if, I think it'll be helpful if you read it with the structure of the passage in mind. So I want to show you here on the screen a, a structure for the passage that will sort of give us a road map for our way through it. We, we have three different paragraphs in the passage we're studying today. And each of those paragraphs begin with a word of judgment. This is God describing His judgment on His people for their sin against Him. So it begins with words of judgment, and then that judgment is countered with words of grace. So God's saying, here's the judgment that's going to come, a just and deserved judgment, but here's the grace, the kindness that's going to follow, and that's going to bring you through it. So we've got judgment, grace, this repeating pattern three times uh, in the passage. I'm going to try to uh, denote those changes as I read through the passage, because I want you to track judgment, grace, judgment, grace, as we go through. All right, so follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 9, and it begins with judgment. Now, why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon." Now here's the grace. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. Back to judgment. 
Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled and let us feast our eyes on Zion. Here's the grace. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand His plan that He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze so you can crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder for the Lord, their wealth for the Lord of the whole earth. Back to judgment. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Here's the grace. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. This might be your story. I'm confident that it is. The prophet is pleading with us to trust in the gracious hand of God. Even when we face the consequences of our sin, even when our guilt is piled high, how does God respond to people who deserve his judgment? Micah tells us three ways God responds. The first is this, God gives new life to his sinful people. Here's how God responds to people deserving of judgment. He gives them new life, even though they're sinful. So Micah begins with a word of judgment in verse 9. And this is judgment that's coming on God's people for their ongoing idolatry and their rejection of God's grace. Now, anytime we're reading passages like this, Old Testament or New Testament, we got to do a little check in our own spirit. You have to remember as you read through this passage, that these words were not spoken to innocent people. Our modern sensibilities might lead us to think, oh, this is, this is too harsh, this is too rough, God is too mean, His judgment too intense. But these are not innocent people. There is a long history of their rejection of God, their gross rebellion against God, not just sin against God, but sin against each other. We saw a little bit of that in chapter 2 of Micah. We saw more of that in chapter 3 of Micah. The descriptions of their sin, it's horrific. And over and over, God has extended grace. He has pleaded with His people. He sent prophet after prophet saying, please, come back. It's not too late. But what Micah describes is a time when it is too late, when God's judgment is irreversible on His people because of their sin and rebellion against Him. Look, it's the human way to discredit God's judgment and to minimize our sin. But if you do that, either looking at this page or looking at your own life, you do so to your own peril. And I say that because I care for you. We cannot think God's judgment is wrong and our sin is okay. 
we have to feel the weight of this passage properly. So in verse 9, Micah begins mid-scene, so to speak. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, Now, why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? As your counselor perish so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor. It's difficult to guess Micah's tone in this verse. It's quite possible that he's being sarcastic here. It's as if he's saying to sinful Israel, sinful Judah, oh, you're under attack and now you need rescue? Well, what happened to the kings you wanted? What happened to the kings you followed, the kings who lived for their appetites and who led you to reject God? Where are those kings now? Why don't you call out to them? Have them come rescue you. I think there's sarcasm at play here in verse 9. Their earthly kings can't save them, aren't going to save them. And so then Micah says in verse 10, Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. So the judgment on their sin will be inescapable agony. And then Micah speaks specifically to say, you will go to Babylon. It's important you realize that at the moment that Micah spoke that line, the reality of that line is 130 years away. He spoke this line 130 years before it happened, but it happened just as God foretold through the prophet. Babylonian destruction and exile was God's judgment on his people for their gross rebellion against him. That's the judgment. But Micah doesn't leave us sitting in the judgment. Verse 10 closes with a promise of grace. He says, you will go to Babylon, and then here's the grace, there you will be rescued. Right? We might expect it to say, there you will be annihilated, uh, evaporated from the earth, done with forever. But no, he says, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. It's an incredible reversal. If you know anything about Israel's sin against God, you would think God will be done with him. But that's not the case. He's faithful even when his people are unfaithful. This is God's grace to Israel and to us. The place of judgment has become a place of rescue. Any chance that that's your story? That your sin has taken you to dark places far from God and it was in that place, the Babylon of your own choosing, that God came and rescued you so that your place of judgment became your place of rescue. But this truth is more than just situational to our own lives. It's a truth that is eternally secure, and it sits at the very center of our own salvation. Look, Micah spoke of Babylon as the place of judgment, but what if he knew what you know? That there was a hill in Jerusalem that was the ultimate place of God's judgment. Israel only experienced God's judgment in part in their exile, and that partial judgment, horrific as it was, was nothing compared to the judgment experienced by the sinless Son of God when He drank the full cup of the Father's wrath on all of our sin. 
the cross is the place of God's ultimate judgment. The reason we have this cross hanging prominently in our sanctuary here is is as a reminder to all of us that though this is the place of judgment, it's also the place of rescue for all those who turn their lives to Jesus Christ. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? This is no lucky rabbit's foot religion. We are not a superstitious people. We're we're just going to say some magic churchy prayer in the hopes that God will do as well. There is real rescue for real people who are real sinners against God. That's every one of us. This cross is the place of judgment and it's the place of your rescue when Jesus Christ hangs there in your place. Three days later, he rose from the dead. If he didn't do that, then the place of judgment is just a place of hopelessness and mythology and fake stories and lies. But he rose from the dead. And what that means is every promise from him is true. And his promise is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? If you haven't, I I hope today that you will, that you will know the rescue of God. You can by turning to Jesus even today. And if not today, I hope you will consider seriously the claims of the Bible, that you are made in the image of God, you've sinned against Him, there's a judgment that you deserve, but because God loves you, He made another way for you by giving His Son to die in your place for your sin. It could be also that you are a Christian, but you find yourself this morning being devoured by your sin, living for your appetites and spiritual rebellion, Micah's words are a call to you to find God's rescue in the darkness you've created for yourself. Listen to me. You can repent even in Babylon. He calls you today. How does God respond to sinners deserving judgment? He gives new life to his sinful people. There's a second way God responds to people who deserve judgment. And that second way is this. God gives victory to his attacked people. He gives victory to his attacked people. So this second paragraph begins with judgment. That judgment is found in verse 11. It reads this way. Many nations have now assembled against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let us feast our eyes on Zion. So Micah addresses the people of God uh, as the object of a plot hatched by the gathered nations, and he puts graphic language in the mouths of the nations that clarifies their intent. This is not the first time in Micah chapter 4 that we've read the phrase, many nations. I don't know if you picked up on that when we read just a moment ago. We first read about many nations Last week, earlier in chapter 4, verse 2, and do you remember what Micah said about the nations there? He said, in the last days, many nations would come to God. So earlier in chapter 4, he describes last days, many nations coming to God, this mass conversion, the nations coming to faith. But now, in verse 11, he describes many nations as attacking the people of God. Both of these things are true in the last days. These are two parallel stories that are true of the nations. In the last days, many nations will come to faith. 
and many nations will try to liquidate the people of God. So Micah described the attack of the enemy. It's intense. Their plans are heinous. But he doesn't leave us in that judgment for long before he gets to God's grace. And so in verse 12, God's grace comes first in the form of the enemy's ignorance. And second, verse 13, it comes in the form of the strength that God gives to his people. So in verse 12, Micah says, But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Like these nations, they think they know what's going on. They think they've assembled to accomplish their evil goals, but they don't understand that God has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. This is dark, ominous language. The threshing floor was the place where you would take your harvested wheat. That you would thresh the wheat uh, by beating it, by tossing it in the air so that the junk or the chaff could blow away. The stuff that remained on the floor, that was the, that was the harvested wheat that, that you would use in grinding for flour, uh, but the junk would just throw away. So the threshing floor, it's a common place. That the description here is of agricultural violence, so to speak. These people are like wheat brought to this threshing floor, and they're going to be threshed. So then verse 13, rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze, so you can crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder for the Lord, their wealth for the Lord of the whole earth. So listen, God's people are depicted as an armor-bearing ox. How cool is that? You are this like armor-plated cow coming to do serious damage to the enemies of God's people. Horns of iron, hooves of bronze. You're going to crush, you're going to thresh, and then you are going to impoverish these enemy nations. All of that because of the grace of God. It's the grace of God that turns hopeless Zion into invincible Zion. By God's grace, the place of attack becomes a place of victory. Now look, every Sunday that we gather in here, we have some new fear to discuss together. There's always some new threat against the faith or some new threat against your family. And sometimes those go beyond threats and they turn into action. We're surrounded by scary things all the time. Enemies that are too powerful have more microphones, have more influence than the little church does. But if you will get Micah 4.12 in your veins, you won't wither in the face of even the greatest enemies because they don't know the Lord's intentions. They don't understand His plans. And they scheme and they plot and they act against the church. They have no idea what they're doing, not a clue. But you do when the God of grace is your God. When the God who equips His church, empowers His church, fortifies His church is your God. Little flock, you have nothing to fear with God guiding you in these moments. And before you start to think that, that our biggest threat is an ideology or some politic du jour, I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul. 
He described our enemy this way in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Look, the headlines are just a front. The true danger is unseen and lethal. But Jesus promised to build his church and the gates of hell would not overpower it. Don't you be afraid. Don't you feel weak. You know what the nations don't know. God has set history on a trajectory. He will accomplish his will and his people will make it through to the end. By God's grace, the place of attack is a place of victory. How does God respond to people who deserve judgment? He gives them new life. He gives them victory. Third and finally, God gives his Messiah for his believing people. God gives his Messiah for his believing people. This final paragraph, again, begins with judgment, just like the other two do as well. Now, if you're not reading from the exact same translation of the Bible that, that I've read from this morning, when I got to chapter 5, verse 1, the words went a little different, and you said, hey, what's happening here? This doesn't make sense. So let's talk about this difference in translation real quick. I hope this next slide will be helpful in clarifying it for you. Now, I've given to you uh, the CSB translation, which is what our pew Bibles are, the Christian Standard Bible. It's Great translation. I love it. Highly recommend it. That's why it's in our Purex. And compared that with the ESV, English Standard Version, great translation. I love it. I highly recommend it. You should read that one totally. Now, if you have anything other than the CSB, most likely your Bible reads more like the ESV on the right. And I've bracketed off the difference in grammar between the two verses. So you can see what's the same. They both begin with the word now. And they both talk about a siege and the judge of Israel, the ruler of Israel being struck on the cheek with a rod. They've got that. But that bracketed part in the middle is where the difference in translation is. CSB, now daughter who's under attack, you slash yourself in grief. ESV, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Those are big differences, unless you and I were conversant in biblical Hebrew. Uh, here we have the struggle of Bible translators to take ancient language with multiple possible translations and to put it into modern English. Translation is always a challenge. Modern translation, always a challenge. But translating from ancient language to modern English, really, really challenging. The debate... There's not really much of a debate, but the discussion here is over really two Hebrew words that, depending on their context, can be faithfully translated either one of these ways. So when you get to verse 1 and you see the difference in the two translations, calm yourself. Uh, things are not crumbling here. But here's the question you would ask in your Bible study. You would ask, what is verse 1 describing? Rather than narrowing down on the minutiae, you can do that if you want. There's good faithful resources that will help you understand the differences in, in the choices made by these translators. But the bigger picture is what sort of scene is being described in verse 1. 
And whether you take the CSB's translation or the ESV's translation, the scene is the same. It's a scene of utter humiliation. God's people under attack. Not just his people, but the king himself, the earthly human king, has been captured and is being beat in the face with the rod that he would hold as a symbol of his sovereignty and authority. To be smacked in the face by his own implement is a sign of supreme humiliation. And so what verse 1 describes is the utter humiliation of God's people at the hand of their enemies. The city is under siege. The king is being publicly humiliated. If the king is captive, then there's no hope for the people. But then we come to verse 2. And grace just erupts from the page into our hearts. And it reads this way, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. Since the human kings of God's people have collectively failed, God will send his king. I don't want you to miss the weight of this. You're familiar with this passage because we'll touch on it uh, just about every Christmas. It's a beautiful prophecy of the Messiah to be born. Uh, And so we love Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you now have the added advantage of understanding the deeper context in which this promise comes. Do you remember how the leaders of God's people are described in chapters 2 and 3 of Micah? They're horrible. They are terrorists against God's own people. They covet, they steal, they take, they leave widows and orphans destitute in chapter 2. In chapter 3, they scheme and practice injustice. That's the way they operate and they accumulate wealth and power for themselves is by practicing injustice against God's people. The leaders of God's people have failed. And so God says in light of all of their failures, in light of the the gross sin of the kings who have risen to the throne, I will give you my king. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is more incredible than you've ever imagined. It's amazing that in light of the failures of every one of the leaders of God's people, God himself says, I'll send my leader. I'll send my king. I'll send my anointed one. And he's going to come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That word, Ephrathah, it's an old name for Bethlehem. You can find it in the book of Genesis. Why Bethlehem? Why is the leader of God's people, God's appointed eternal king, going to come from Bethlehem? There's two reasons. First of all, God chooses Bethlehem because it is so unimportant. It is a terrifically insignificant, tiny village. Here's how insignificant Bethlehem is in the scope of the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 15, there is a list of over a hundred towns that are allotted to Judah. Over a hundred towns are mentioned from this single region. And you can read about Zorah and Zenoah and Zenan and Ziph and Zur, but there is no mention of Bethlehem. Beeloth and Beth and Beersheba and Bezeothiah and Baalah and Bozkath, 
but no Bethlehem in that list of a hundred towns. It's that insignificant of a place, and yet a ruler sent by God himself is supposed to come from there. Isn't that the way God always works? We're looking for muscle men from Jerusalem, and he sends us a baby from Bethlehem. This is why Bethlehem is chosen by God, because it is so unimportant. But the second reason God chooses it is because Bethlehem is hugely important. It's the birthplace of King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God promised David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. How is it established forever? Because there is a king greater than David, a king greater than every king, the ultimate king promised to David and promised again in Micah chapter 5. The boy from Bethlehem was promised that a king above all kings would come from him and his throne would be established forever. So that old promise is what God fulfills in the ruler who comes from Bethlehem. A king from Bethlehem is a reminder that God has a promise to keep. However, as amazing as verse 2 is, we get to verse 3, and there's a little bit of a hiccup in the story. There's a time of deep sorrow that precedes the coming of the king. Look at verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. So three things happen in verse 3. The people are abandoned for a time. That happened in their exile. After their exile and after their return home, the Messiah is born. And then after the Messiah is born, there's a family reunion of sorts. That family reunion is described by the Apostle Paul as the salvation of Jewish people and Gentile people through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul described that family reunion in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He said of Jesus, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And finally, we get to verses 4 and 5, and they describe what the reign of the eternal king will be like. Look at it with me. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd them. So his reign is secure. In the strength of the Lord, his reign is mighty. In the majestic name of the Lord his God, his reign is majestic. They will live securely. His reign is triumphal. For then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. His reign is universal and he will be their peace. So in the face of siege and the attack of verse 1 and the exile of verse 3 and every other sad event of our lives, we have a shepherd, strong, majestic, triumphant, and global, and he is our peace. Peace is not a philosophical concept. Peace is not a thing. Peace is a person. Peace is Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, then you have the peace that God has intended for you.
So Micah has answered an important question for us today. What will God do with rebellious people who deserve his judgment? And Micah has answered this way. He told us that God gives new life to sinful people. He gives victory to attacked people. And he gives his Messiah to believing people. All of this means nothing to you if you don't believe the seriousness of your sin. If your take on your own life is that your sin isn't that bad, well then God's judgment isn't going to be so scary. Look, you're better than most people, so you're sure you're going to be fine in the end. But how could you be so hardened to the grace of God? Look, there is hope for you today if you'll see yourself for who you are, and if you'll see God for who He is, He is the God who judges sin, but He is the God of infinite grace to those who turn to Him. That's the invitation today, is that you would turn to God and receive His grace. And in fact, there's an escalation of grace in this passage. I don't know if you saw it as we went through each of the three scenes It begins with God saving broken sinners from their sin. Next, God turns broken sinners into unstoppable warriors defeating their enemies. And then finally, God says, hey, your kings, they all stink. I'm sending my one and only son. He's going to get the whole family together. He's going to be your peace forever and ever. He saves us. He strengthens us. He reigns over us forever and ever. On the night that Jesus was born, a company of angels made a birth announcement to shepherds in a field. They could have made that announcement to anyone. They're not obligated for any reason to make that announcement to these shepherds. They could have made that announcement to bankers or farmers or moms or priests or kings, or Caesars, but they didn't. They made the announcement to shepherds. And we aren't told explicitly why shepherds, but I think it's to remind us of the words of Micah that this is our good shepherd who has come and with him brings peace. And listen with fresh ears to the way Luke tells the story. Just listen. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. On earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Do you know the peace of God? You do. When the baby from Bethlehem is your king. Let's pray together.
Father God, I'm grateful that Micah's words can be our story today. That you came to us while we were still sinners, sent your son to die for us in our sin. And he brought us out of the pit. And he set us on the rock. And he has given us a place with him forever and ever. Not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. So God, we praise you for your infinite, powerful grace. Thank you that your judgment on our sin was given in full at the cross to the one who died in our place. So God, I pray for brothers and sisters in here who have wandered far. They are deep in sin. God, rescue them. Break their hardened heart. Father, expose their sin. If this is what it takes for them to rest in your grace, let them repent in their Babylon. Let them turn to you once again for grace and rescue. God, I pray for weak and feeble Christians in here that you would give us your strength, your armor, that we would stand firm in the day of attack. And Lord, that above all else, we would live in the peace and the joy and the glory and the majesty of our shepherd king. And God, let this be the day that someone in here experiences your call and they turn to Christ for their salvation. Thank you for bringing the family together through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing the story of what God has done and what he will do for rebellion.